This is Driven by Data, the podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Driven by Data, the podcast, season two, powered by Orbition Group and hosted by me, Kyle Winterbottom. We're delighted to bring you another season of Driven by Data, the podcast, which boasts even more data analytics and AI thought leaders from across the globe. Our aim remains the same to uncover how some of the most prominent leaders within the data analytics community tackle our industry's most trending topics, told in order to share knowledge, ideas, and experience. And just as in season one, to give back to the global data and analytics community. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode. Welcome to Driven by Data, the podcast, season two. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Herman Haynes, who is the CEO of Anmut. So Herman, thank you very much for being here. Kyle, thanks so much for uh, having me, and always, always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sure we're we're going to annoy lots of people with our views as usual. But <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, well, well, it's it's very wholly possible. I, I think I do that on a pretty much a daily basis. So um, I think people have come become accustomed to that now from from me, but maybe not so from you. So we'll give you that platform for sure. So um, so look, where we always start, Herman, is by asking our guests to give themselves a a brief introduction, obviously into their background and you know, how you got to this point, if uh, if you would. Uh, so I'm uh, everything out of the ordinary, I think. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 was, um, I was born in South Africa, which is not that uh, uh, out of the ordinary, um, but I, I'm dyspraxic, I'm dyslexic, I'm colorblind. Uh, so you can imagine um, a lot of things that came easy for other people in life was was always a struggle for me. Um, by the time I was six years old, I was chased away by the tennis coach and the piano teacher for wasting my parents' money. Um, so, uh, but, you know, as Maya Angelou said, you know, if you're always trying to be normal, you never know how amazing you can be. And, and I think being a little bit different when you're younger actually allows you to explore that throughout your life. So a lot of the decisions I've taken throughout my life have been a little bit counter to where other people are going. Um, but I've done many of those sort of normal things. I, I've been in the data space now for 32 years. Um, a lot of my career I spent as a partner at Accenture looking after their European performance management practice. Uh, and obviously that's where a lot of the data stuff in Accenture, which is now Accenture Digital, uh, came from. Uh, I also looked after KPMG's data practice in Europe uh, and also for EY. So, uh, but if you've been in the game for 32 years, three jobs isn't, isn't that bad. Um, uh, but one of the things, you know, and I've been working, I've been incredibly privileged to work with uh, phenomenal clients such as ExxonMobil, AstraZeneca, NatWest, um, the Team GBR sailing team, which is one of my biggest fun projects. Um, and nice. Sparky, Sparky is now living in Manchester and he's actually uh, looking after the cycling team now, so uh, the GBR cycling team. Um, but the thing that struck me over all these years is if we're spending $300 billion odd uh, dollars a year on technology, why is the gap between the data organizations have and the data they need to execute their strategy so big? 
And why has it not improved in the last 10 years? Um, so about four years ago, pretty much exactly four years on the 1st of May, we started ANMED. Um, so when I say we started, so myself and Professor Andy Neely, who's the pro-vice-chancellor at Cambridge University, and that, that job keeps him very busy as well, um, to solve this problem. Um, because organizations spend an enormous amount on data without realizing it. So the average organization spends between 5 to 7% on data, in capturing data and cleansing it, storing it, analyzing it, and making decisions with it. But it's not accounted for in that way. The CDO's budget is typically a fraction of that, typically 0.2% of the revenue of the, the organization. Wow. So a lot of that spend happens all over the place. And one of the reasons the CDO's job is so hard is that the board sort of expects a CDO to be responsible for all of that, but they've only got control of the 0.2%. Hmm. So how do you solve for this problem? How do you close the gap? Well, if the CDO is the person who can make a difference there, and I think the CDO is the person, then a lot of it lies in the job description of the CDO. What are they responsible for? But also to help educate the board about what to expect from the CDO. And the thing that struck us when we started talking to more and more CDOs is, on the one hand, and this is, I'm going to sort of paraphrase a story we sort of hear regularly. A lot of CDOs struggle with the fact that they, they have to do the bright and shiny things like the analytics or the machine learning or the whatever, or a data lake. The data lake is obviously the thing that a lot of people have been doing recently. But, um, but then when they present to the board to say, our data is really in poor shape, we need to spend 200 million, 500 million, a billion pounds on fixing the data, the CFO or the CEO doesn't know what questions to ask the CDO. So what we, one of the things we do is to work on both sides to help the CFO say, what are the better questions I need to ask? And the questions typically are things around, what's the value of our data assets today? What could it be if we made the investments? How do I know we're making the right investments? How do we prioritize? And so on and so forth. So that's really what Anmud is about. Anmud is not about the classic things that I've been doing for the past 30 years. It's not about the analytics. It's not about the accessibility. So data warehouses, data lakes, all that kind of stuff. What Anmud is about is saying, how do I know what the right data, data assets are for the organization? How do I know how valuable they are, just like any other asset? And how do I know how valuable it could be if we made the right investments? I mean, in a nutshell, that's really what we do. Mm -hmm. And so we bring real rigor and management science to decision-making, the fitness for purpose of data and the right data. So that's, and we've been incredibly fortunate over the past four years to have clients such as Pfizer, National Highways, Smith & Nephew, Rio Tinto, and so on. So, uh, you know, I, I sometimes have to pinch myself to think we've, we've been beyond uh, blessed with what we, you know, what we should be. So, um, so that's, that's the story. Nice, nice. Well, thank you very much for the, um, for the kind of comprehensive introduction. I mean, that, 
that in itself fascinates me, right? Because I've had several guests on this podcast and and what one not too not too long ago actually, where we were speaking about the kind of the gap between the CDO and the business. And if you look around business leaders in terms of advice that they get, whether that's internal or external, there's very rarely anyone from the world of data or often not even technology to a certain extent. It's, it's normally business operationally focused or it's finance focused, which is interesting when they spend so much money on this stuff, right? So it sounds like you're trying to plug that gap, which is a really great space to be in given how much you know um, lack of value has been realized, right? <laughs> because I guess that's the question that now everyone's looking at. And obviously we've had people like Doug Laney and Bill Schmarzo who talk about the economics of data, right? Um, and infonomics and stuff like that and about trying to put value on these things, which is is interesting. So um, yeah, appreciate the the introduction. I guess before we jump into the, the meat of the topic, then what's your role? Obviously, I know the CEO, you're running the business, but are you out there doing this advisory work yourself or how, how big's the business? What's, you know, what, what, what are you getting into? So we, we have uh, about 30 direct employees and quite a few other uh, indirect ones. Um, yeah, my, my job is CEO and I, I'm reading a fascinating McKinsey book at the moment about CEO excellence, um, which is well worth a read. Um, there's not particularly much new in it, but it sort of uh, reiterates what CEOs does uh, do. And, and they um, they sort of come to the conclusion very early on in the book that Nobody knows what a CEO should be doing because <laughs> every CEO's job is is different. But they sort of distill it down into a few things. Uh, one of the key things a CEO should do is to provide the vision for the organisation, uh, and I think that's true. I think the, the the other things they sort of major on is ensuring you make the right bets, the right capital investments, how you build the right team, which is critical, um, ensuring the organisation stays aligned, and so on. But as a startup, as you know, as Guy Kawasaki said, how do you know a CEO of a startup is pitching? Well, his lips are moving, you know, and I think that's, <laughs> that's, that's pretty much a, a CEO's job in, in a startup is you, you need to ensure the momentum, the forward momentum. You're either recruiting people or you're bringing new clients on board or, or, or whatever. Um but it's a fun job. It's a fun job. It's a tough job, and I don't, you know, no, no, nobody who's, who's in this job would say it's it's, uh, it's an easy job. But it's incredibly rewarding in stretching you into areas that you just haven't had that stretch uh, previously in your, in your life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I guess obviously we, we started to to delve into you know some of the things that you see as core challenges in the industry that which led you to set the business upright but i guess if you were to think holistically across the organizations that you've helped throughout your career and more recently with anmo um what do you think the biggest kind of obstacle or challenge for most organizations who are trying to realize value through the use of data analytics is what, what what's stopping them from getting to that point where they can be really successful with this stuff um it's <laughs> It's a big question. I'll give my take on it, and um, and then maybe it will make sense. Maybe it won't. So imagine you, you know, you are Shell, and you own that building that used to be the Shell building, right where Waterloo Station is. 
that building, I think they sold for about a billion pounds to developers. Um, now, if you if you the CEO of Shell, it's very unlikely that you will start off about that decision by saying, "What kind of taps are you going to install in the new building?" or or uh, the is, is it going to be uh, plastic flooring or carpets or stuff like that? We, you know, are we going to have everybody in each office decide what color paint they want? I, I don't think you'd be asking that question. You'd probably be asking a question like, um, what's our building worth to us today? What can we get for it? Could we develop it ourselves and make more of a profit or should we sell it? I think that's kind of the business decision about the building. And I would guess that's the same about just about any other asset of value. When it comes to data, the complete opposite applies. I rarely hear the board talking about what is the value of the data today? What could it be worth? What should we be investing in it? What I do hear is, gee, I've just had a presentation about some machine learning that can tell us whether our employees could be happier or not. Mr. CDO, could you, could you go and do something like that for us? Or, um, you know where I'm going, Carl. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the first problem, why we're not making progress with this. We, we haven't set the clear boundaries about what the CDO's job is and should be and what the board's job is. Um, that doesn't mean that we don't want to hear from ideas from all around the organization and so on, but there are fundamental things that the CDO should be accountable for. And I would argue the most fundamental thing is ensuring that the organization understands the data assets it has, what the data assets could contribute to the shareholder value or in, in other stakeholder value, and how much of that the CDO is responsible for improving every year. I think that's the fundamental thing because that's how you would um, keep every business unit lead accountable. Now, why that's, I, I you know, I, I was talking to a, a CFO friend of mine on Friday and she was saying, you know, I don't understand what these data guys talk about, the data and digital guys, because quite often they lump digital and technology in a CFO's mind. Often the two are, the same thing. They don't really separate out data and technology. Um, so they, they bring this business case to build a data lake. And I think, well, I don't know how much you need to spend on a data lake. Um, but what they don't talk about is how much value is it going to create for the organization? How do I know that it's actually going to deliver because the track record of these projects have been dismal? Um, and how much should I be investing? So those kind of things, a lot of CFOs, particularly CEOs, don't feel equipped to ask the question. So they talk about other stuff because they, they don't know how to ask those questions. But actually, they should really just ask the same questions. And the CDO should be able to respond with answering basic portfolio management questions. So that, that would be my very long answer to your, to your question. No, I mean, fa fantastic answer in my opinion. I mean, I, I often get asked, so as, as you know, you touched earlier upon job descriptions, right, which I've probably um, 
by complete accident probably become a little bit famous for in terms of my my opinion on the majority of most job descriptions and and I guess when organizations come to us and they we have a conversation around what that job description should look like what it should entail you know I find myself often re-educating taking them back down the path they've just come uh, and trying to get to the nooks of look really what's important to you as a business because I guess nine times out of ten it's just a shopping list of technology like technological requirements and I'm like well all this is great you can go and find that on someone's CV. That's that's not a problem, but that's not going to necessarily get you from A to B on on the value train, right? So, so these are the types of conversations that I'm having. But I think for me, this all comes down to, especially businesses that are at the start of that journey, they often don't know what they don't know, right? Which is why it fascinates me that businesses like yours are now starting to come into the fold and have these conversations because evidently, you know, if a business, you know, a board, business leaders decide, right, we're going to have a priority on data and we're going to bring someone in as a CDO or a data leader or whatever it's going to be called, nine times out of 10, they're not exactly sure themselves what this person should be hired to do. And, you know, my my view and maybe quite controversially is that a lot of this stuff stems out of obligation, right? You know, everyone's talking about this stuff. Our competitors are apparently doing this fancy AI project. And before you know it, you know, they've spun up a team of 50 data scientists. They're building some uh, ML models. And, you know, there's been no other thought around, well, why are we doing this? What are we trying to achieve? How are we going to tackle this long term, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really good to see that these businesses like yours trying to bridge the gap between that space because i think that's really what a lot of this comes down to to be honest with you um i know that when we spoke offline you talked about and you mentioned earlier right the the amount of spend that goes on in the industry but the gap between the data that organizations have versus the data that they need to do this well is huge right Why, why why is that um It's it, in some ways it's it's bizarre because you would think that the answer is actually pretty obvious. If you look at the strategy of the organization, your first question should be as a CDO is what data do we need to enable the strategy of the organization? Um, but it's a bit more nuanced than that. So I'll I'll try and give you an example from a company which we chose not to work with, and I'll explain in a second why we we had to walk away. Um, and, it, and that is painful as a startup. It's really painful to walk away from, from a client, but we do. And so this is a global, very big car manufacturer. Um, and they have 30 already in-flight data programs running. Um, some of them are building a single customer record model, all the things you'd expect, building an enterprise data warehouse, data lakes, doing machine learning about customer preferences and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so we, it, it doesn't take that long to decode the strategy of the organization and say, okay, so these then are the data assets that are going to be really important to you. Uh, one of them is customer. So the answer is correct. But then the conversation took an interesting turn because we we said, so do you, you, all of these 30 programs, 
are they going to try and focus on the data that exists in your organization today or the 60% of the customer data you need to really get customer insight that doesn't exist in the organization? And all 30 are focused on the internal stuff that's currently in ERPs and CRM systems and all that kind of stuff. So by the end of this multi-hundred million pound spend, they will have no better insight in the customer because 60% of the data sits out in the retail network, in, in retailers that they have contracts with and that they can access data if they chose to, if they understood the value of that data. So we said, listen, you either have to reshape all 30 of these programs or even stop some of them, but you can't do what we do in parallel. If you decide these are the most material data assets, you either do it properly or it's going to look really silly because you're going to spend all these hundreds of millions of pounds on going down a certain route on 40% of the data. Now, if I explain to you like that, it sounds super obvious, but the problem you have is that quite often these programs take on a life of their own in organization. Somebody's sponsoring them, et cetera, et cetera. And nobody is willing to say, but it's actually not going to deliver on the expectation that the board has. Uh, and I know what then happens is if, if I then go to the CEO and say, listen, you do realize this is not going to work. You can imagine how popular I'm going to be with my sponsor. So, so those are unfortunately still things that are happening. Um, but we're starting to see a change. We're starting to see people saying, let's figure out first what data we need. Let's understand what the condition of our data is currently in the organization before we make the investments. Not all organizations are doing that. I can see that will happen over time, um, but I can also see that there's still probably 70% of organizations that will continue for the foreseeable future still doing this thing because somebody is sponsoring it. Um, I know that sounds sad and it sounds defeatist, but I think that's the reality. And over time, that will change. You know, we can only work with clients who are willing to get it. Um, and I'm probably alienating a lot of people in saying what I'm saying, but that is the, that's the reality of how we see life. Yeah, no, look, and I think, um, I, I think you're right, right. You know, you, especially, I mean, the bigger an organization, the bigger these programs are, the more money is being thrown at them. It does become, you know, there's a lot of politics at play there, right. For someone to hold the hand up and say, hang on, we're probably running very fast in maybe the wrong direction here, but we don't know that yet. <laughs> right. So um, it, take, it takes a, a lot for someone to kind of ad admit that. Um, I guess from your experience then, how do, how do organizations get themselves into this predicament? Like, how has that decision been made to run 30 individual data programs that are all gunning for the same objective, but are merely doing so on, I guess, a false, a false economy, right? Because it's often, um, it's complex stuff. Um, you know, so one of the large banks have only recently started restructuring their uh, data office, but they had 400 chief data officers around the world. So you can imagine 
the amount of duplicate effort that's going on there, uh, complex programs to get stuff in the cloud and so on. And, and there will be benefit to each of those things. Let's not kid ourselves. You know, not, very, very few of those things have no business case at all. Um, but if you don't start from the premise of scientifically decoding the strategy and the market that you're in and understanding what data assets you really, really need, like the shell building, um, and you start with the plumbing and so on and so forth, you're going to have an awful lot of wrong taps in the building and so on and so forth, because it doesn't start at the asset level. It starts at a much lower level. Um, and what, what we've found is if you start at a higher level, if you start at the asset value level, um, then you also realize immediately when you look at the asset, there are a number of duplicate projects already running. So what that allows you to do is to rationalize those. But that takes a lot of political will, as you say, to say, listen, we've actually already sunk costs in each of these, but they are duplicates of each other. So we're going to stop those and we're going to reallocate the spend to something that is well architected properly funded because none of those would be funded to deliver the outcome. That's the unfortunate truth in most of the cases. Um, so, so I think it starts from the wrong, starting from the wrong starting point. It, it has to start from what do we want to achieve uh, strategically or, and, and including what you need to do regulatory. Um, but it requires a different level of thinking. And, and part of the issue is, one of my clients is a very large infrastructure company. When they build a big asset, they know that they have to spend 10% on architect and engineering fees. They know they have to spend X percent on surveying, et cetera, et cetera. So it is not a shock to them that they spend 15 to 20% upfront on proper design. Now, try and say to, in a technology space, have you spent 20, 30% on proper design before you've made any technology decisions? I, I don't regularly see those kind of um, things. And that's where it goes wrong because then what you bring to the CFO or the CEO isn't properly articulated as a design. If you're going to say this is the building, it's going to cost two billion pounds, but we've had Foster and Partners actually design it. This is the design. And we've had Mott McDonald do the engineering on it, et cetera, et cetera. You've got the proof points to say, look, we've had professionals look at this stuff. Yep. When it comes to estimating these, these projects, it's like often... Uh, let's do something over a week and try and put a business case together for the, the conceptual design and the business case. And then you present the vision for the data lake. I'm, I'm exaggerating. It's not usually that fast. But that 15 20% that you should expect to have in proper design and estimating is 1% or less. It's not even 1%. So, so that's where it goes wrong. And then the rest is, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of history. I think there's also... I, I have a number of advisory board members for Anmut, and some of them are not data people or technology people. Some of them are classic CFOs and so on. 
a lot of them struggle to understand that data is at its best when it's architected globally at the highest level. Um, and that you can't have every part of the organization architect their own thing on data, but it requires a real investment to do that. I, I don't think that's the, during the 80s, there was this whole view of devolving decision-making throughout the organization. And with that, the devolution of how systems were implemented, et cetera, et cetera. Now, part of it was good, but actually it created a fragmentation. Many people call it Conway's law, that you actually fragment the data to the lowest level of the organization structure. Anyway, that's a very long answer. I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 that's fine. I mean, that, that's really interesting because I think that there's two parts in there that I want to pick out and ask your opinion on then, Herman. So first of all, I, I my personal view now is that we've spoken about this so much that if you go to any business leader, any data leader, even any data practitioner, and say, what's the right way for us to go about doing our thing? I'd be pretty confident that most people would say, well, let's start with the business problem or opportunity and work backwards, right? That's almost been like verbalized to be ingrained in our minds now. Yeah, I don't think that happens at all. I don't think that that really happens in reality. Um, I'd, I'd be keen to get your thoughts on that. Um it does and it doesn't. Um, <laughs> Come on, I'll, get off the fence. <laughs> I'll, 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 try, I'll try and give you an example of something I saw recently um, in, a, in a client that we do work with. So this client had five different CRM systems. And whenever they, and they had lots of customer issues because the different parts of the organization completely recognized customers as different things. Um, and the answer to that was to build a data lake and put all of that in the same place. And they went from a vague problem statement, we don't have a common view of the customer, to jumping to a technology solution, which is the data lake. So putting all of this stuff in the data lake. Now, on the face of it, what you are saying is the data is now accessible and easily accessible for everybody um, like that. However, with what we realized is nobody had actually gone to look at how customers are classified, what is a customer, you know, the basic, really basic definitions of, of stuff. But even before you get that, what problem are we trying to solve? And then once you start peeling back, okay, we're trying to deliver these business outcomes, these strategic outcomes for the business. How fit for purpose is the data to deliver on that? None of those five systems actually are. So we actually need to pause for a second, define what data we really need, and then kind of say, okay, so now how do we get the data, which is not a data lake problem, how do we ensure we move from the 20% fitful purpose to answer these questions to 80% or whatever the number is that would be good enough for you? In other words, what process interventions need to be made to capture the data? Or what competence needs to be built into the call center to collect the data, etc. So these are how do we how do we know what the right data is? How do we put the right things in place to get the fitness for purpose of data? 
And then how do we make it accessible? So, so I, th I think, I mean, I often still scratch my head how somebody jumps from a customer question without analyzing really what the pain points the customer is experiencing to a data lake or to machine learning. Or, you know, I, I, I still kind of think, but mm. how, how did that happen? Where did that jump happen? And truth be told, I've seen some demos which are very convincing. And I kind of think, I, I can understand if I were 25 years younger, I would have probably fallen for the same thing. Um, so mm. what I would say is always go back to, but is it solving the problem? Do I understand the problem clearly enough? And that takes time and effort. And then once you understand the problem, then you need to say, but is it valuable enough to solve that problem? Yeah. Because quite often it's not. Yeah. That's what I was going to say, right, when you were, you were speaking, just because the, there's an instance where the business has identified, okay, we don't have a single view of, of our customer or what their issues or complaints or whatever the case may be are. That doesn't necessarily mean it warrants that much time or investment to change it if it's not causing you you know if it's not detracting from your strategic objectives at this moment in time right so and i think there's maybe a part of that that we see a problem we jump to okay we need to create some kind of data solution around this to fix this problem and the reality is is no one actually cares <laughs> right um so i think i think that's very, that's so, that's so true uh that's so true you know i, I don't want to sound sort of super wise about this stuff i've made every mistake every mistake in the book so the reason i i kind of can talk about it is not because i'm particularly arrogant it's just that i've seen i'm, I'm old enough to have seen this movie from so many different editors cuts and directors cuts that it's you know these things happen um the the challenge i think the cdo or the data office has is how do you convince the organization to hang on until they've done this proper work? Many CDOs that we work with actually know this stuff, but it's saying to the organization, but hang on, let's analyze it properly and then make sure that it is worth solving because the person sponsoring it doesn't actually care whether it's that high in the organization's um, pecking order they are sponsoring something that's a pain to them. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say it's um, it's interesting because I guess we hear a lot in the industry, right, about this whole kind of philosophy or, or concept of prove the value, mm -hmm. prove it quickly to get buy-in, to get adoption. But that almost in its own existence probably causes some of these issues right like a, the concept is 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 probably fine right and i agree with it you know these things need to need to happen you need to prove the value you need to do it quickly you need to you know use a a single use case and prove that it works so that you get the business on the journey and everyone's bought in and you you know all of that great stuff right but ultimately that goes against exactly what you're saying right in terms of we just pick one use case and run with it who knows if that's the right use case who knows whether it's going to add any value who knows whether anyone's going to care or not <laughs> right so it's almost this conflicting advice that, that that we that we get across the industry which is is interesting and i guess that probably just highlights that it's really dependent upon the need of the organization right at that moment in time. 
And I, I think you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Um, one of my friends is a CEO of a global chemicals company, uh, oil and gas company, sorry. Um, yeah. And they have a chemicals component. But when he was the CEO of Global Chemicals a few years ago, he started a program with McKinsey about doing exactly that for optimizing plant performance. And they've got hundreds of plants around the world um, to prove it quickly in one plant. Now, because I've seen that kind of movie before, I said, that's fine, you will optimize that one plant, but that won't pay all the McKinsey fees. What they are saying to you, our fees will be recovered by all the hundreds of other plants that you've recovered. Yeah. The only problem is, the problem that they're all facing isn't exactly the same, and the data landscape is totally different. Um, he didn't believe it until they got to that point. But, but and it's not, it's not sort of a criticism of any particular consulting organization. I mean, I've been in lots of them, and I, I still, you know, have fantastic friends in all of them. The issue is, are you dealing, are you trying to solve a strategic problem or you're trying to solve a tactical problem. And if it's a strategic problem, then you might have to deprioritize some of the tactical stuff. Um, investment in data is expensive. So I think a lot of people don't realize how expensive really good data is. Um, but the value of it could be significantly more. And what we're trying to do is to help CFOs, CDOs, CEOs speak a common language around the data asset portfolio. So this is the common data asset portfolio we're all looking at. Which of the 2,000, which of the 20 are we really going to focus on that will create exponential shareholder value for us? That's where we're trying to continually focus people to get back to. Because then once you've got that, you can say, well, we might need to spend a billion pounds on this particular data asset. And 200 million of that is going to go into just architecture design and understanding the problems properly and, in, and understanding the, the revised customer experience and decisions that will come from it. And a lot of it will still go into technology, but it's making sure that you understand the scale of the opportunity, because if we can get this right, if we can actually understand our customer preferences really much better, and we design it like that, that could be worth two, three, five billion in additional shareholder value. So if you then look at it, you say, okay, then it makes sense for us to spend that billion, and it makes sense to appropriately apportion the right amount into the design and the change and so on in, in the organization. Um, I, I, you know, the, the example that I used about the CRM system is unfortunately where, as I said, 70% of the industry is still going because it's a lot easier to sell that as if you're a consultant. And because I've been a consultant for many years, I know the drill. Go where the money is, follow the money, you know, and, and that's kind of, but I've realized that's not solving that problem. It's not making any of our clients any better off for the long term. So now that I'm sort of in the second career of my life, or I don't know what you'd call what I'm doing now, but I feel I can do the thing that really solves the problem. And it's actually 
so obvious. If you think about it, what I'm saying is, is so obvious because it's been done with all other asset management disciplines over the years, with financial asset management. If you're, if you're a fund manager, if you're a fund manager, you're not going to ask what colors have they painted the factory walls. I, I don't think I know any fund manager who cares about that. They do say, okay, is this a healthy stock? Have they got a good management team? Is their strategy sound? And can I go to get a good return from it? Those are the questions that fund managers ask. If you are building, uh, you know, if you're a Jones Lang LaSalle or somebody who invests in buildings, you ask the same question. Is this a property that can be improved, that I can get a return from, et cetera? Uh, that's really what we help organizations with in terms of data assets. It's ridiculously simple in some ways. It's complex because the amount of work you need to do to be sure you're right. Because you, if you guess this, you're not doing it properly. Yeah, and, and that was going to be my next question, Herman, is obviously we, you know, we speak a lot in the industry about the concept of ROI, right? And it ends being forever making it, it's, it's just a massive gray area in terms of pinpointing an actual tangible figure on that so i guess whilst um you know the the theory of look let's plan this out let's do it right let's make sure we've got the data assets that we need or at least we know if what we don't have where we can go and get it or whatever the case may be um if you can accurately say if we do this right it's going to be worth five billion but it's going to cost us a billion up front to, to do it fine i think every ceo on the planet would go okay yeah i'm, I'm in for that right but i guess kind of history probably tells us it's not quite always worked out like that. And I don't know whether that's because we're just doing it wrong as per your CRM example, or um, whether it's just hard to, to kind of pinpoint ROI because it's not as simple as, you know, we build for X, we sell for Y. I think it's an, uh, it's an industry problem. Um, so I'll give you an example. When I was still at Accenture, we did a major transformation for a, for a retailer in the UK um, and we estimated it would cost about £2 billion to do it. Um, so literally at the last minute, um, the retailer turned around and said, they'll do all the process and people part of it, and we just need to do the technology stuff. Um, but it was architected as a whole, and you can see how this is going to play out. Anyway, long story short, by the end of it, they wanted money. So, so we did our work for the billion pounds, um, but they wanted some money back because it didn't deliver on all the benefits. But then who's accountable for it? Now, the reason I use that sort of example is in the industry, everybody who's sort of in the technology space knows that you, when you bid for a specific piece of work, if you estimate to do it, properly you won't won't get bought um, because somebody's going to come in at half the price and the the reality is the things that that go out of the door very quickly are the things that are difficult to measure like quality of design like understanding the outcomes that you're trying to achieve and the things that stay in are the easy to quantify things like how many databases did we create? How many apps did we develop? So all of these things stay in because they are easy to measure for a procurement function, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
the there is a way to solve that, and and that's sort of what we do. So the way we do it is we take how the organization creates value. We've created a ton of algorithms that helps to decode how the organization creates value, what the value drivers are, what the most important areas are, and what type of initiatives are required to deliver those. And then we we help estimate them for our clients so that you understand what the asset is worth, what it would really take to, to do. So we sort of, in the building trade, we would be the equivalent of the architect and the quantity surveyor um, to help. What we don't do is then go and build the data lake or the data warehouse or whatever, because then we would really be conflicted. You know, so we, we although I've done much of that in my life, I know what they really cost to do. We don't play in that space because the, we genuinely think the industry needs somebody who can stand back and say, well, actually, from our experience, this is what it really takes to deliver. And this is the value it can deliver. And is it properly architected? So we look at 60 different areas of a program like that to say, have you got all of these things working in, uh, in tandem? And um, so it is, it is possible uh, but I think the industry is wired in a specific way to for failure. Um, and the, the facts are, are very clear. If we just look at the digital transformation space, if you, depending on whether you believe McKinsey or Deloitte, it's between 6 and 30% success rate. 6% success rate of digital transformation um, of delivering the benefits. And CEOs have been fired. I mean... The previous CEO of Aviva was fired because he went out to the street to say, we're going to digitally transform Aviva and couldn't deliver on it. Goldman Sachs asked him in the last investor meeting that he presented, you've said this five times before and you haven't delivered any of the benefits. So these are real problems. CEOs are starting to get really worried about it. And, and I think that's why the tide is changing. This is why you're starting to see this whole topic starting to become more and more real. Um, and the, the challenge for the, the consultancies who try and do all of this stuff is that you can't be objective. You, you, you're just not incentivized to be, but I'm not going to criticize. I think everybody has a role to play, um, but it starts with this, the CEO and the CFO, CIO and, and CDO to say, let's have an honest conversation about the priorities. Because once you've agreed the priorities about what the strategy of the organization is, the rest is actually secondary. Then you can say, but it really does take a lot to make this happen. Let's stop doing some of the other stuff. If you can't get to that, then you can't be successful. And unfortunately, I feel sorry for CDOs who are not allowed to have that conversation because many are in that position. Yeah, yeah. So, look, Herman, I'm conscious of time, but you started to touch upon the CDO there. So I think that's a good place for us to try and kind of wrap wrap this up. So I think based on what we've covered, obviously, your your kind of message here is that, um, you know, you've got to take a more holistic view of what your data asset is, the data that you've got versus the data that you need to be successful, right? Which makes, as you said, think about that logically, that's, that's just common sense, right? But we're not doing it that way for all the reasons that we've outlined and there's, there's ways around that moving forward. The the kind of the role of the CDO fascinates me partly because you know we recruit in that space very heavily the CDO or the data the data leader right and we see a whole array of different 
organizations, sectors, setups, things that work, things that most often don't. Um, what what role, in your opinion, does the CDO have in this equation of you know thinking about data as an asset and getting the right type of data into the organization or having access to it to be able to do this properly? Um, you're probably going to laugh now, but in, in the fund management fund management industry, um, there's a saying that says, you get the investor you deserve. <laughs> and, um, I think often CDOs get a boss they deserve, not, not because they're bad people, but I think there's a level of due diligence um, that needs to happen to say, what kind of CDO am I? Am I a, a steady state kind of CDO? Am I a transformational CDO? Am I a CDO that will really help push the boat out on better machine learning and analytics or whatever? And, and there's a there's a strength and uh, you know for for each of those. I I've seen the weirdest CDO job descriptions. I've even seen CDO job descriptions that mention Python and machine learning, and you kind of think, okay, well. That's something the CDO should be hiring, not what the CDO does. I mean, yes, it's fine if the CDO can code in Python. I don't think that's a problem, but it's not necessarily what you hire a CDO for. But what I'm trying to say there is be very careful about whether the people hiring you understand what a CDO should be doing. And I'm not going to tell people what I think a CDO should be doing. Well, I am. I'm going to do that. I, I, think, <laughs> I, I think a CDO's job is fundamentally about creating more business value um, and the way typically anybody people create more business value is by saying what what can i do to improve the asset value of the organization or the capital value of the organization so what assets do i have do i truly understand the asset base that i'm working with do i know what condition it's in do I know what it's worth today? And do I know what's a reasonable expectation for it to be worth in the future? And that should be my first marching orders as a CDO. Um, and then there are a number of technical things that support that. Obviously, there's architecture, technology, architecture. There's all that kind of good stuff. But if it's framed in too much of a technology uh, frame, you already going to be misunderstood by the board because the board frankly i mean as i said one of the cfos who i spoke to on friday said they just don't understand what these digital and data people tell them so their strategy and literally this is what she said, she said her strategy is i don't understand what they talk about so what i do is i only give them half the money they ask for I'm not joking, wow. but I see this movie over and over again. So it because if you're going to work with a CFO or a CEO, they care about the business value and the results. So your job has to be framed in that way, and it has to be enabled with the right governance structures to allow you to do that. Mm. Um, that would be my my first piece of advice. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff that we can talk to about. But I think getting a very clear scorecard, and I know you and I have talked about this before, is what should be a good scorecard for a CDO? You know, because I think that's probably between you and I the, some of the biggest 
service we can do to the whole industry is to say to help educate boards, people who appoint CDOs, what what is great for the maturity of your organization because it does differ. Yep. It's, not, it's not the same for everybody. Yeah. What re, what's realistic for an organization such as yours? Um, because the, the CDO churn is, is terrible. I mean, I a lot of CDOs I talk to are incredibly unhappy. One of one of my friends is a CDO said um, he he says when when somebody approaches him for a, a new CDO role, he says, "Why did you fire the previous guy?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he says, "Let's start with that." <laughs> but I, I think that very much because the the churn in CDOs is is terrible, um, mm-hmm. and it's this misunderstanding, it's this misalignment in between the what the business outcome is that's required. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's why I was mentioning earlier about, you know, it fascinates me now and it's great, in my opinion, that you've got businesses like yours that are connecting those dots because, as you've pointed out, you know, there's people that sit on the board that can't distinguish between data, digital and technology. And therefore, you get into this environment where if it is relatively new, they go and be right, okay, we need to hire a data leader to run the ship for us. Okay, well, they need to be an expert in Python. They need to be an expert in cloud computing. They need to be an expert in AI because that's what they think is required to do that job, right? And actually, um, despite all of the noise in the industry, what's really needed to do the job is how they get from A to B to provide, to prove value and and, and realize value for the organization through the use of data analytics, right? Which is, uh, it sounds so simple when you say it out loud, yet, you know, probably 95% of job descriptions start with a technology first approach, even for the C- CDO role, um, which is unfortunate, but I think that is now starting to, to to change based on, you know, well, this exact conversation, right? The amount of money that's being spent that's not realized any value. So um, look, Herman, conscious of time, but it's been uh, absolutely um fascinating having you uh, having you on i've really enjoyed it and uh yeah we uh we look forward to seeing how your journey at uh, at Amok kind of continues if uh, if anyone's got any questions or wants to reach out to you about anything that they've heard today what's the best way for them to to get hold of you well i'll tell you what um uh, my email address herman.r.hainz at amma.co.uk is probably the best i'm on linkedin as well um so feel free to reach out and I'm sure they can reach out through your blog as well if uh, <laughs> they want to ask questions. But but thank you so much for the time. It's as always incredible fun to talk and uh, and good luck with your business as well. I think we, we, we have similar challenges at other ends of the spectrum. So, uh... <laughs> That's it for this episode of Driven by Data, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be back next week speaking with another thought leader from the world of data and analytics. Until then, Please follow Orbition Group on social media if you've not already done so, where you'll be able to subscribe and therefore be made aware of the podcasts as they arrive. And please share, like, and leave reviews so that more people from our industry get to hear and benefit from these two. If you've got any questions or you want to suggest ideas for topics or potential guests, then please feel free to reach out to me. Thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week. Bow 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 bow